another big shift was that they no longer wanted or required you to have a diagnosis of body or gender dysphoria in order to consider to be a candidate for hormones and or surgery. And that was a really unique shift because it was more or less presenting that this is now a choice. This isn't even a pathology. This is just um, someone saying it and now you're signing off on that. And that was when I was like, oh, okay. So I thought that everyone who was identifying as that was acknowledging at some level something was going on with them that was atypical and this is the way they were treating it. But no, this is what now it's, this is what I am. And you're just a part of that affirmation to get there. Hello, and welcome to the program Woke Up, where we uh, hear the stories of uh, those who had given themselves to today's uh, ideologies and realized that there were things going on and it was taken into a place that they did not want to be. And they, they uh, felt like they wanted to change. And so today, this show is a must share uh, if you know anybody who is struggling in, that's in the trans community or the queer community, any parents or family affected making big decisions, uh, please share this uh, because we have a, a really important and special guest. And the guest we have is a woman who has dedicated her life, her professional career, starting at the, uh, after she got her graduated and received her master's degree in family therapy and starting at the age of 22 began to give her life's energy uh, to helping those that struggled with uh, gender identity, uh, transsexuality, and uh, has built her career on this and built her career out of empathy, compassion, love, and really uh, trying to help people to become whole. And it must be a horrible thing for a human being to feel like they were born in the wrong body. Uh, I don't know what that's like, and I can only have empathy for those that, that struggle with that. So that's a real issue. Mm -hmm. And based on the culture today and what's happened in that industry, our guest is uh, uh, Sarah Stockton, who is uh, uh, who owns a, uh, a family, uh, psychology clinic. She's a social worker. She has a beautiful practice in Syracuse and starting at the age of 22 today, she's going to talk about and share with us what's happened, uh, in the, in the profession, uh, the, the incredible changes that have taken. And Sarah comes with this from a, a really good place, a really good heart, not casting any, uh, accusations at all. But just simply saying, look, there's certain things that have changed in in our delivery of of healthcare, our mental healthcare and physical healthcare to people that are struggling. And uh, she's going to share today about some of the titanic shifts that have happened uh, sociologically and and the and the unintended consequences. And so, Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming okay. on, and uh, welcome. Uh, and hello to you in Syracuse. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, one of the things I do think is really important to touch upon, like you said in the beginning, is I really spend a lot of time thinking about the fact that 
I don't struggle with body dysphoria or gender dysphoria. And like you said, I have no idea what that might feel like or what exactly their struggles are. But I have struggled with different mental health issues at times and medical issues. So I think the importance of being well-informed and having doctors that you can trust and being in a field that you can understand is really important no matter what we're talking about here. And that's, I think, what really uh, made me just, uh, to start considering if I should speak out more and uh, discuss what's going on in this profession, in this world, what's going on with our kids. And uh, one thing I just want to correct is that I'm a marriage and family therapist, not a social worker. We're very uh, similar in what we do, but that's just an important note. I don't want social workers to be upset with me. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I, I said corrected. Thank you. Yes. So when you start about uh, at age of 22, what was, what was going on in your heart and what was your affinity and your high level of empathy to get into this uh, business of helping people along these lines? Yeah. So, I mean, in grad school, you definitely start thinking about perhaps any specialties that you might consider a niche or any populations that of our interest to work with. Uh, in Syracuse, I, there was a good LGBT queer community here. And I think that is something that is a part of this community as well as interest in, you know, human sexuality. That was definitely something that I was interested in with wanting to help couples and families. So there was a group that was already developed in the grad program that was known to help adults who transsexuals receive hormone treatments starting with uh, a mental health assessment that we would start considering what would that look like if we were to start assessing children for interventions at a younger age. So, I mean, I had a mentor, you know, she was my supervisor. That was a big part of my interest in that. And I kind of, with her leadership and uh, many of my colleagues, we continued to research that and develop an assessment to help children in the clinic with that. And so why don't you share like the, the transition of time and uh, leading us up today, like some of the things that you were observing and some of the, the, the successes and also some of the things that brought you cognitive dissonance and, and certain levels of discouragement that you think we need to begin to look at better as a society. Yeah. I mean, so if you looked at the assessment that I helped develop, I mean, there was, it was systemic in nature, meaning that we wouldn't just be assessing the child's voice only. So you would be bringing in parents, family members, school collaboration, medical collaboration to really discuss if this youth and their family were prepared for the journey up ahead and to acknowledge and evaluate what's going on now. Because most of these children obviously present with an underlying diagnosis of anxiety or depression. And so this assessment would probably, like I stated before, take about two years to complete when you would be asking, you kind of would ask the children's questions, then you would ask the adults questions to see if the stories kind of match up and what, what's going on. I think one of the biggest shifts that happened was when Planned Parenthood started offering hormones to adolescents and to adults. Therefore, there wasn't really the need for, as in the 
as of a com- comprehensive assessment to get these hormones right and already we're starting to enter now and what the was world. the time what was the time frame of that shift with pan, uh, planned parenthood just so we have a context of the year about about 2010 okay 2010 and 2012 is going to be the passing of the affordable care act right like that's when we're going to now start getting financial reimbursement for hormone blockers so you have to understand one of the unique parts in the beginning is that when I started this with youth, these weren't necessarily even approved under your health insurance. Therefore, there was limits to what parents could perhaps afford this. So the treatment was not as accessible in that kind of in that kind of realm, right? It was a special insurances. It wasn't always Medicaid, right? But as that starts to shift, that really opens up the doors for a lot more people to seek these services. Okay, so then what happens from 2012 coming forward that you that you see? Mm-hmm. So, well, first of all, I think as the care starts to increase, right, we have more and more kids identifying at schools. And so that in itself, I think, l- let me just give you an example. If I'm in a small school, there was one, one person identifying as trans within five years in that same grade you would probably have two to three. Okay. And so, and again, I I don't want to contribute this all to a social contagion, but that is about how, how, how uncommon it was at one point. And then all of a sudden within a couple of years, every school had to be prepared for this and, and be able to do the shift. I mean, when I first started, going into a school and asking them to change someone's documents and their records was unheard of. Like, what do you mean? You're going to have us go to the document building and change the, the name like that was a no. And what we really did was we sort of threatened the schools now, okay, if the student has a mental disorder and we have a diagnosis and if the diagnosis says that you need to call this person by this name and you don't, you are actually um, you're in a HIPAA violation because you're not provi- you're not providing assurances according to the medical diagnosis. So with that sort of threat, that changed the school's uh, way of coming across quickly. They they were they magically were able to figure out how to change documentation fast. And then you know, th- I think the community just continued to get larger, the online presence, the ability to have groups, right? Um, And then the sheer amount of training. So when I went to school to become a therapist in the Syracuse area at one time, there was maybe four of us that were able to write the letters and were able to assess people. Within four years, there, there was no specialized training per se. You could arguably graduate with no discussion around this at all. And what I mean by that, like if you went to a Liberty uh, Christian University, you're not really going to be introduced to queer theory as much as you would potentially in another graduate program. But yet you would still be able to be competent enough to write a letter to have these children not only just start hormones, but get surgeries as well. For children under 18, right? right? Yeah. And that was also the big, a big shift too, was like, you have to understand the, what my job was determined was determined by what WPATH decided, right? So if WPATH, the World um, Association for Transgender, 
decided that it was a year of therapy before you have surgery, then that's what it was, right? If they decided you need a letter, because you, you basically use the same letter for hormones as you would for the, the name changes you would for a surgery. You just change the words. Okay. And uh, we'll keep going. You're doing great. I lo- Just keep uh, telling us a story. We'll just edit this uh, pause out. So you're doing wonderful. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what happened too, so now keep in mind, every single person now was a, able to be a trans specialist, right? Where I spent wow. my first couple years, five years, right? I would travel the country, I would teach medical professionals how to have their practice be more gender affirming. We didn't call it that back then, but just, you know, more suitable for transgender patients. So I would go to GYN offices, primary care, right? And give them continuing education and really helping the surgeons that are working on this. So you have to understand, I'm working with the surgeon who has, you know, done the first 10 ever chest surgeries right on on youth so as that gets larger and larger the there's just so many of us then i see things kind of start to shift right so we have then the passing of gay marriage that was became in the federal law and therefore the what you need to fundraise for the human rights campaign now switched to transgender rights so that became the top news that there was a lot of violence there was a lot more you know suicide threats again one of the things that they threaten now you know if you don't uh, let this happen to our youth that they're going to commit suicide that was not something I was taught in 2008 nor did I ever utter those words to any parent I never needed to even suggest that that would be a way that there's nothing in the world that I should have to say that the I'm going to problem solve by committing suicide. That's the lowest level of problem solving. And I would never say that. So that kind of shift, the wrong body shift. Um, and then really the they entering um, the they nonconforming. Now, I mean, we've always understood the androgyny and the gender bending. Like that wasn't something unheard of, but a lot of confusion within the community. You know, my friends who identify as trans with, you know, they doesn't connect to what, what's happening. So I just started to realize that it was getting a lot more broad than I understood. And whoever was in control was not the mental health professionals anymore. So it, how about the term like non-binary? Was, when did that become part of your vernacular? <laughs> oh, that's definitely more of a recent thing. I would say, you know, like in the last five years. Mm. So it wasn't the professionals on the ground like yourself and the handful of others that were highly trained and highly skilled. It seems like there was other forces on top of setting policy and direction and setting the tone for everything that's going on right now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think my field has anything to do with it anymore. I mean, there, like I uh, stated and some some of the people that might be listening ha- haven't heard me on Jordan Peterson but I think when I started to also have concerns and realize that that was not going to be heard there isn't really assessing anymore one of the I don't know if you follow Project Veritas but Project Veritas in the last couple of days have released a lot of videos of going undercover at gender clinics in New York State 
and them just being like, oh yeah, it might just be one session because we really don't want to act as the gatekeepers for this. And we, and I remember being told that and thinking I don't want to be the gatekeepers, but at the same time, like if we aren't, who is, you know, and who is going to help these students, these students, excuse me, these youth with what's going on with them and these families. And so I guess another big shift was that they no longer wanted or required you to have a diagnosis of body or gender dysphoria in order to consider to be a, a candidate for hormones and or surgery. And that was a really unique shift because it was more or less presenting that this is now a choice. This isn't even a pathology. This is just um, someone saying it and now you're signing off on that. And that was when I was like, oh, okay. So I thought that everyone who was identifying as that was acknowledging at some level something was going on with them that was atypical, and this is the way they were treating it. But no, this is what now it's this is what I am, and you're just a part of that affirmation to get there. And so you would you personally would sign off on things that uh, were basically new policies. Is that is that correct? No, I wouldn't sign off on new policies. Primarily, I would be signing off that people would be ready to start hormones and or be able to receive uh, surgery for their affirmed gender. And what, what types of like uh, in the last 10 years, would you say, in terms of exponential growth, are we talking? Uh, is it along all ages and lines or mostly teens or younger or older people too? Or like what's, what's kind of going on in the demographics of all that? So, I mean, I think it's obviously difficult for me to talk about it and as demographics for sure. Right. Cause you got to assume that I guess I'm only going to be witness to people that are struggling. Right. So maybe I don't see everyone. Um, I do work in a university setting. So I've had a little bit of an opportunity to see what kind of shifts have happened there. Um, I would say that overall there's a general sense of an increased around, I think every pop, every age group, around considering gender identity and gender expression, right? So I hear now more than ever, like, for example, gay men who are older and who have been very comfortable being gay men just saying casually, well, maybe I should be a woman because it would be easier, right? And I don't think, you know, 10 years ago, they would even conceptualize that as a thought right now. So now people are thinking about it. Again, I have parents that are coming in and tell me before their kids are born, that, you know, if my kid becomes a male one day, even though they were born female, like I would be able to accept that. And um, and that's just something unique that as parents, we have to consider that ahead of time if we would be accepting of that. Um, so, you know, I am seeing it increased across the board um, and just using hormones as a treatment for medical uh, mental health is not totally uncommon anyways uh but with the youth it was just it's dramatically different so when i was doing this again i would say okay i the youngest i had seen and worked with was 10 but that was very very rare and the typical ages that were coming in to see me would be like 14 15 
the 14 and 15 age. Now, when I'm hearing him, like, for example, my son's school, you know, that there is a lot, and again, I don't know what a lot means, but of people identifying as a, a different gender at, in grade five, uh, I'm a little bit concerned because at grade five, there's no puberty blockers, there's no medical intervention. So there's just affirming by name, but we are alluding to kids that this is more than just a name change. This is actually like some sort of biological difference. Isn't there also like a high percentage of uh, young people that begin to socially present at a young age? Uh, then they're very open to taking the puberty blockers and then a cross-sex hormones. Isn't that like mm -hmm. a, a natural trajectory that, uh, that that kids go on to? Yes. And I think that was another alarming part is that obviously kids were starting to come in. They already know the steps. So yeah, I'm coming to see you so you can write me the letter for surgery. It's not like we're not, it's not even, we're going to consider this. Do we think it's the right way? You know, this is the only way that we're doing it. So yeah, I mean, that's another difficult part about this is, you know, just even seeing what's going on now when people are so scared that all of their care is going to be taken away from them. Um, just that they've been presented as like, this is the only option to be better. So if I struggle with this, they take away my ability to get hormones, then forget it. And the scary thing about the world is no matter what, like you could get a di medical diagnosis. I have a blood disorder. I can't take hormones of any sort. So, you know, if you have a, what happens later in life, if you're unable to take one of your medical interventions, does that mean you're no longer what you say you are? So that's what's the scary part about this as well. Do you find like a lot of, uh, let's just say teenagers in that demographic, they come in and like, they've almost been prepped. They know what to say because they've got it in their mind that they want, they want to get on hormones or, or puberty blockers that they know exactly what to say. For instance, like at the Southern border, a lot of uh, immigrants that are crossing over, uh, that want to have access to the America, they, they apply for asylum and they say that, and they're already prepped by, by NGOs or lawyers saying, yes, I feel for my life and, and safety. And then the government just has to rubber stamp that and let them come in as uh, asylum seekers. And, and so that's all pretty well documented and organized. And you find like oftentimes the kids are pretty well informed and they know exactly what to say. Like I've struggled with this my whole life. I always felt like I was born in the wrong body. And they almost have like a little speech or parents are that encourage this or do you or, or is it like you're able to do a real fair deep dive and a deep assessment? No, I think at one point, like in the beginning, yeah, we could do a deep dive and an assessment. But no, very quickly, not only the letters were up online. So right, like the letter examples. So this, the kids knew exactly what to say and exactly how to present it. And I don't want to say it didn't matter, but I don't think there was a lot of emphasis on hey, how are we going to watch for that, right? How are we assessing for the fact that they understand that and where are they getting their information from? I mean, a, a big thing was you obviously would want people to be supported. So you would suggest support groups for kids, but in these support groups, they're telling the kids, okay, well, here's the surgeon that you're going to go to. Here's the next steps. And the only way to get there is doing it this way. So yes, I mean, there was often times where kids were annoyed with how slow it was going, right? And that was a little sad because 
they were aware that other people would have it faster. And so they would get frustrated if their parents were not as quickly to get on board. Yeah. Have you heard about a, a place called the Tavistock Clinic in, in England? Are you familiar with that one? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you would, but from what I read that they saw an increase of 4,400% of uh, young girls that uh, wanted to do some kind of gender change or non-binary. And it was just like that talking about that social contagion. Now they've shut down. It seems like uh, other places, other countries like in Europe, Sweden and, and Finland are taking a much more conservative approach. And it seems like America is just kind of like the wild west with uh, the administration of, uh, of medicines and surgeries and stuff like that. Would you, uh, I mean, how do you feel about what the steps are Europe's been taking and what types of improvements do you think we should take as a, as a society for our young people in particular? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've seen, um, for example, when I started and I was working with a youth endocrinologist, I would assume that the, that population was about 10% of her clientele. Now it's 100% and a waiting list, right? Um, so these clinics, I think we're going to continue to find out that most of our hospitals perhaps would be in the red if we didn't have gender affirming surgeries and clinics around here. I, you know, I live in New York state, so I'm already seeing a lot of talks about making this a sanctuary state, right? And the passings of a lot of legislation across, you know, I think Montana passed something yesterday. So I think it's going to be this kind of legislative fight of banning these surgeries but i think we're in we're a little bit past that now because these people still need care now we have a lot of kids who are in like a third category not kids even adults who have a third category of who they are and what kind of treatment they're going to need so i don't think it's going to be as simple as shutting them down so you sense that there's also somewhat uh, of an economic agenda with uh, the hospitals and perhaps big pharma as well not somewhat Tell, 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 us about, I, tell us about that more. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's somewhat, right? I mean, I, I, even one of the hardest things for me to see is that, and again, I'm not against people getting the care that they need, but in my own in, insurance through the state, if I had breast cancer, I my chest reconstruction surgery would not be covered. Yet full, fully sex change surgeries are covered. Now we're talking about $80,000 uh or more for some of these surgeries that is just just wild so the amount of money that these surgeons are making on that i mean the field of facial deconstruction or reconstruction that is a completely new field and that is one of the fastest growing fields in this realm and some of these surgeons the surgeons that do these top surgeries that's all they do now so i i think we're going to be against a lot of doctors who are going to be out of business and i don't think that's going to happen uh, i am just uh, annoyed with the euphemism top surgery let's just say it call for what it is these doctors their entire practice now is chopping off the breasts of healthy bearing uh, women of bearing age uh childbearing age and the consequences of that social uh, psychologically 
who knows hormonally and there's, and it's all for economics or, or I shouldn't say all, but incentivized greatly for economics is just, it's like I got kicked in the stomach. It's just, it's just so sad to think that these children that aren't even fully developed mentally that can make this, these informed decisions are now going to have the consequence for the rest of their lives, you know, and, uh, the consequence and, you know, you're not wrong when you say that, but I also want to point out um, the financial money is really in the male to female, right? We're just starting to, yeah. Okay. So the top surgery, it's still not as financially mm-hmm. beneficial as perhaps even getting uh, chest surgery for uh, males to females. And obviously bottom surgery for women is more commonly than done. We're, again, it's just much more recently where we're going to be constructing the penis. But I think that even speaks to our society and what, what, what our standards are. But you have to also keep in mind, it's like a couple places in the United States that have these surgeons who are now teaching other surgeons. So this might be, I've been looking at these surgeons that are young and this is like myself, the last 10 years and maybe all your life is this experience. And that surgery uh, is you, you take some tissue from your forearm, right? And they make a, a fake penis. Is that or your or your leg? And the penis isn't doesn't really function like a real penis. And do you you, you have the same supposed sexual pleasure that a biological man would? Or I, I don't know. Forgive my ignorance about that. No, it's more. You know, it, that one is definitely more for you know being able to pee standing up. Some definitely more aesthetic looking and there is going to be some sensation um but not not the same no what types of things do you think we should be doing and how should we approach uh this social contagion coupled with real issues uh, the economics involved what can we do better from your professional experience and what would you like to see implemented and uh how can we change yeah i think this is difficult because of Part of me wants to fear that we're going to have to really fight it before we can change it. Right? I would like to, in a perfect world, I would say, okay, <clears throat> we need to go back to really good training of what we're doing here and what gender dysphoria is, what body dysphoria is, what being a certain gender is. Just connect, you know, if we are being so free with gender, then why is it so connected to medical procedures? I think we need to have a lot more safeguards for children in terms of what the informed consent is. I mean, just to get gastric bypass, I know people who have been denied, right? And that is really like a life-saving surgery. If you're talking about life-saving that, you know, gastric bypass does, they don't even have to watch a video, right? They don't even have to talk about the complications. There's no surgeries that I don't that I've had that I don't have to really consider what's going to happen later in life so I think that informed consent we need to be screaming about that I think mental health professionals have to be really concerned about what they're signing off on this is the only medical treatment I sign off on in my whole field that I'm allowed to it's the only one um and why so why am I allowed to sign off on someone's genitals but nothing else is relevant to me. And I also have no assessment criteria in order to do that. 
And, and what about the the parents of uh, of young people that are affected by this? Uh, it seems like their rights have been neutered and they suffer and they must affirm or they're hateful or, and there's a entire grieving process in the family, not just moms and dads, but siblings and grandparents. And I mean, this gender, you know, you know, somebody as your granddaughter, your grandson, and you have to learn a new language or you're a hater. I mean, what kind of uh, psychological things do you see uh, that are problematic that uh, as a result of these policy shifts and this cultural shift uh, for the family and loved ones of, of, of your patients? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say to remind parents, and I think it took me getting to the last couple of years to actually really understand the value of this, but we have to start thinking about the way we talk to our kids more about our bodies in general. There, you know, we talk about body positivity, but there really isn't a lot about body positivity. I have clients who have introduced me to you know, and this might be gross for some of your listeners, like free bleeding during their period and how much they are connecting to their mother nature, to who they are, right? And we're not teaching children, particularly young women, about the process that their body is going through. And it's a beautiful process and how we need to trust our bodies. Instead, it's it's bad. Let's give them birth control. Let's deny every single thing that's going on to them. And it makes no... It's, not surprising to me why we're so disconnected to what's going on. So I think we have to be really aware of like celebrating femalehood, manhood. And I know that sounds cliche or, you know, maybe uncomfortable for some, but if we don't get back to like accepting who we are, it's going to be dangerous. I would say too, is that you have to have conversations with our kids young, right? I've had to have conversations with my son at 10 and my daughter who's six around what is happening and that, you know, what it means to be a female, what it means to be a male and that what we're witnessing is someone presenting as, because I think that's the biggest differentiation. We cannot just say this person is, because that's very confusing to young kids. So the way we talk about it, and I think with families, with this, the grieving process is real, right? And being able to, um, there's a culture that I don't think parents realize going on in our schools that is teaching our kids to not, not trust your parents and that they're abusive and that, you know, you need to cut off and you don't need them. And so just knowing, you know, being able to talk to your kids around what values is important and what, no matter what they're doing, you know, the, being able to stand in that, the implications of that. If someone's saying, okay, mom, I want to identify as something else, then okay, you have to be able to sit with me and talk about the grief of that. You know, when when parents were going through this, we would bring in, for example, you know, pictures of this kid because, you know, we're going to have to talk about, are we allowed to have pictures of this child up when they look like a different sex than what they are now? How does that make you feel? And, and I came from the place that we need to be able to accept this at some level, right? Either this was a part, this isn't a bad part of your past. This still got you to where you are. And if you can't even see that, and we're, we're living in a denial that's not good for anyone. So I think the process of really grieving and acknowledging what's happening is important. Yeah. And also the, the concept of a gender affirming care, gender affirming care, 
and everyone needs to spring to attention and salute family, friends, bosses, all society, the medical community, uh, the, the, the mental health community. When one person gets in their mind, uh, this is my gender, without looking at all the other things, all the other underlying conditions, the history, and everybody needs to to do to follow that and and to support that. Otherwise, it's it's not loving, it's not affirming, it's hateful. And then they're subject to the whim of, oh, I change that again in a few years, especially when you're dealing with young people who change so quickly. I mean, I was a young boy. I was my first love. I was 16 years old. I thought I was going to marry this girl. I was totally in love. And, and then we broke up. And then a year later, I'm like, why did I love that girl so much? I couldn't understand it. I mean, that's part of being a teenager and developing. And, and but everyone's got to get in line because of the pressures that are going on within a, a young person's mind, you know, so. Well, not even just pressures. I mean, think about their programming. Like, and sometimes I have a lot of empathy. I was, you know, at a concert and I saw someone collapse over and one of my friends went up to, went up to the, them and it was like, she was unconscious and she, is she okay? And that friend, their friend snapped back and said, it is not a she, they go by they. And this person was unconscious and we had to correct the correct pronoun usage. And, you know, it was almost like it was so innate in them. And I'm like, if that's the level in which you're going around the world, I mean, think about how potentially traumatized our children are and just how hypervigilant they're walking around. And just all the time thinking, oh my gosh, if I'm misgendered, what does that mean if someone, you know, doesn't understand? And having, I had a, one of my friends, was, she's in her 70s, she told me she was just watching episodes of people that are presenting as, you know, like a male with a dress on, with a beard, so she could get used to seeing very different looking people so she wouldn't be surprised anymore and i said so you're watching videos of that and she's like yeah so i'm not react re- don't have any more reactions anymore i'm like wow so we're really like programming ourselves to be okay i mean i've pretty much learned the art of n- not addressing anybody with by name or pronouns and and like i tell people i'm not going to tell you how to speak about me behind my back so that's the only reason why you need to know my pronouns is if you're going to talk about me behind my back Oh, so you don't uh, uh, say she, her, or they, them pronouns about yourself? You don't, you don't get into that. No, because I don't need to tell you how to talk about me when I'm not around. Interesting. <laughs> well, that's logical. Mm-hmm. And I got a question for you. As far as the young people, say under 25, 23, or whatever, uh, in the Syracuse area, what would you say are the percentage of the of the uh, gender dysphoric, I'll just use that word, uh, that you would see uh, would be Caucasian? Uh, 95. 95. And so let's be clear, there's the demographics, according to 2020, Syracuse has 49, 50% Caucasian and about Mm -hmm. 30% uh, African American. Mm -hmm. And there's biracial and Mm -hmm. seven or 8% Hispanic. Mm -hmm. And so there's something going on there that I mean, any statistician that's worth their salt would say, why in the white community is this so prevalent and not so much in, in uh, other demographics? And this is not being racist. This is just talking about demographics that the United States census takes every year. So there's something in the demographic of Caucasians 
uh, throughout the United States of America. I mean, this isn't necessarily happening globally, Africa, Asia, mm-hmm. right. uh, South America. This is a Western phenomenon, kind of like Correct. bulimia or anorexia. Uh, I, I, I think we really need to look at some of this stuff as a society, you know? Yes. If I, I mean, I would forget Syracuse. If I would get, I would bet if we looked at the numbers of surgeries and look and broke it down by race, that it would be exceedingly Caucasian. And my, and I thought a lot about this. And my concern is, is our obsession of identity and then our obsession with not liking our identity. So if you are a straight white male, when we do that, that class where we talk about who am I, you feel pretty bad. You know, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of benefits to that. And we're not even, I think with the internet and because, you know, we're not even a friend anymore. Like I was thinking about growing up and what, who was I at 12, right? I was a sister. I was a daughter, but I was a friend. I was a student. Like there's not, we don't teach people like friendships because friendships are so different now with our kids because online, everyone is a possible friend or not, right? There's no need to have this like value. So I'm going to have to find my value in a group. Now, the group of being white, they're shooting up schools. They're doing this, right? So I do think there's an emphasis of like, okay, also, do I like that group? You know, again, children are asking me, like, how do I know I'm male? How do I know I'm female? Because I don't really feel like I am like that female. So just this even belief that that means something different is is damaging to our children, for sure. Yeah, and you were saying uh, I'm just going to get back to to the the surgery part. The you were saying that it's overwhelmingly white in the surgery, but you also said as a result of the Affordable Care Act, you know, there's been a, a change, and part of that mandates uh, that everyone gets insurance, and these insurance companies cover this. So for the DEI radicals, it would say, oh, it's white privilege, and black people can't afford uh, gender affirming care like the white kids can. Uh, no, that's not the case because if an African American would like to do that. Uh, their insurance company would cover it uh, under the Affordable Care Act. Is that correct? Yes. And I would I would state that my assumption is that culturally the other groups are not as not accepting, but it's just not gonna come up as as quickly, right? And I, I am getting calls from different countries now that saying more and more people are struggling with this mm-hmm. but i think some of the families that would be from a different culture here that that cultural tie this ambiguous gender assignment is not something that they're growing up in yeah so it just logically it's there's a social contagion going here amongst yeah. our younger caucasian people that needs to be looked at yeah. uh on a profound level and so absolutely uh, I got a couple more questions in your practice. Like you've yeah. seen transitions, you've seen, uh, mm-hmm. you've been, you've been involved with this. What, what would you say were your biggest mistakes? Like everybody makes mistakes. And I'm not looking for you to disclose too much, but like, what do you think you're the way you're viewing this and what would you do different today uh, than you were five, 10 years ago based on all, you know, this career versus uh, this career, careers worth of, uh, of experience and knowledge and, and, uh, analysis. What, what, what were the mistakes that you made? So, you know, I, I thought about this a lot and I think about it a lot and I don't know if I would say 
there was really mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I think I've tried to correct those mistakes a lot if there was any, right? So just the being really upfront with clients about what this process looks like, the process of therapy at all at my practice, not just gender affirming care, right? Just therapy in general is going to look similar in some level, regardless of what your presenting issue is. One of the biggest things that I don't think I knew enough about back then, nor maybe could I, and even if I did, would I be able to do anything about it, is the medications and this long-term side effects and what was really going on. I mean, as much as it's not my job to, right, I, there's no other medications. I mean, I have a sense of antidepressants and what's going on. Um, but again, I get a lot of continuing education on that. But the drugs that I were was I more or less saying was okay. I was told by communities, there's no side effects. So in 2008, when I wrote that, like the puberty blockers, it was, it was irreversible and had no side effects. Well, that's just medical. That doesn't make any sense that there'd be nothing wrong with causing puberty. There's now we found out there's cognitive difficulties, there's potential bone density issues. So I think being able to know how to talk more about that. But I don't know if that would have mattered because again, at some point they came in and that was, that was just the answer. And that's what, what's happening. Now, isn't a lot of that stuff off label and it's not even approved by the FDA. Correct. Yeah. The FDA, they're not approved. I mean, and which, you know, to be fair, some drugs that we take are not approved. A lot of, even some of the drugs we experiment on with kids with antidepressants are not, completely approved for children use and you know it's up to your discretion but these parents aren't really being taught that it's uh, there's any other option and what percent of the patients would you say have comorbid, comorbid uh, psychological problems such as ADHD or depression or or other things that are, are running parallel every single one so sorry every Every single one. Wow. And, uh, and so a frontline treatment isn't that. It's let's talk about gender. Correct. And not only that, I mean, again, when I started, that was really significant was the treatment of other illnesses. I mean, many of my letters would state with a caveat that I would recommend that they start this under the supervision of remaining in psychotherapy to, again, deal with the implications. There's there's no required help after you get all these surgeries that are life changing. Right. And this is changes everything for the rest of your life, how you have to interact with the world. And my fear is that there isn't a great deal of knowledge and help on that. And not to mention what I'm getting introduced to now is the detransitioners and what they feel like they're doing to the community and the help that they don't have and the hate that they receive. Yeah, they're just turfs, right? <laughs> they, they never really were trans. And, sure, I'm. That's an, yes, a term that I've been introduced to as. Me, the, oh, me too. I, I'm learning yeah. a whole new language in the last couple of years. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you you would you would uh, hit on the misgendering thing, and I, I've seen that 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 people are so. Not everybody, but I just see a, a heightened level of agitation about being misgendered. Like, for instance, uh. We had that tragedy in Nashville where there was that uh, woman who was uh, taking testosterone to present as a man and 
And then she ended up being bitter toward her school and there was just a tragic shooting. And then people were angry and agitated, not so much for the victims, but that the police would dare to misgender uh, a biological female. And that just seems weird. It seems like some of this stuff or the use of dead names, it, it's uh, what, what's, what's the root of all that, that from your perspective, the heightened sense of aggression and agitation and cutting off relationships because of being misgendered and hating people over that. I mean, it seems extreme. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, some of this, again, I think it reminds me of really cultish religious people, right? Um, the dead name, for example, that was not a terminology that we, I learned and I just heard that more recently with obviously the Jordan Peterson thing. Um, but that's really scary to call it a dead name. Like we're more or less normalizing suicide. So that's my fear about this is that if we can just kill a part of ourselves, right? That part is dead. That that's wild. And we're reincarnated or we're the spirit of right? Uh, this new being. Um, and so you have parents who are again getting told if they, if I'm not able to change my language right away, we're not going to speak, not acknowledging that it's going to be tough to believe someone's dead that is right in front of your eyes. And so I tell people like, this is, a, this is almost like a religion because it only exists if you believe it to exist. And if the external tells, tells you it does. Um, and that's why you have to practice your faith every single day. They have to present it. They have to meditate on it. They have to mm. bring it into the world. And if someone doesn't acknowledge what they don't see, they turn them away. And, and some of this can't be healthy for the person themselves in that yeah. if somebody's slow to get on board with uh, their transition process or presentation or the new them or the the, the the self-identification, there's a tendency to just cut off those relationships, whether they be family or close friends or the historic record. And it's like they erase their, their entire background or people that, that could help support them and truly do love them. You know, I, I think that can't be good for mental health. Uh, grieving know, the loss of relationship concurrent with the physiological changes going on. No. And I think my fear is this too. Like if there's not a lot of, empathy for a parent then there's something going on if you expect that you know from your own parent and I really think what's happening here is regardless if your child is transitioned I don't think they're even picking up on the fact that you don't accept them it's the fact of you you are the example of what they don't accept about themselves so if I'm looking at my father mm then I, that is something, right? Like I am my father, at one point I was my father's daughter. So I have to, you know, ignore that. How does one know how to be that father's son? So sometimes I don't think it's the parent's problem. It's more or less the kid's problem. Like, I don't know how to be this person's son now. And that's where it gets really weird because I'm like, what are you asking your parents for? Because there's names, right? There's, okay, that's my daughter. But I think sometimes we're talking about is like, you don't, you can sense that your family or someone isn't buying into your reality, into the world, into your world. And 
that's probably true. I mean, we, again, we can identify someone with any name or switch it, but you give birth to your child, you know, like regardless, it's still your child. Yeah. It's a whole family issue, isn't it? It seems like it, this is a big deal. It's not just the person and the patient, what they're going through, but are they being instructed properly? That, look, this is a big deal. This uh, might be how you feel. Maybe you'll change your mind in a few years, but this is going to have huge impact on your entire history, your childhood friends, your, your cousins, your grandparents, your siblings. Uh, are, are, is there, it just seems like there should be much more education about physiological, emotional, uh, social presentation, like you're referring to oftentimes the social anxiety that goes along with the transition. Mm -hmm. It just seems like this is a massive, massive change. And it seems like this agenda is so quick, so strong to alleviate uh, or to gratify the person struggling in the moment without really a, a, a strong contemplation of long-term consequences in their own lives and their social network. And, and uh, this transition for, from family and friends that you've known your entire life to a quote unquote glitter family as your, as your principal caregivers, which is much more transitory, you know? And it causes them to not want to connect with, you know, their childhood friends or anyone. Cause again, it's not just if the next friend accepts it, it's, can you accept that your friendship with that person was all connected to your dead name? And that's why I think people mm. are more and more likely to cut off, not because they're mad, but because they don't know how to accept it within themselves. And I think it's because they're not getting good care. They're getting next day you're this instead of no, when something goes on, you walk through that with someone. If someone gets a cancer diagnosis, like loses their hair, or lose, you know, your identity might shift in that. Like, someone's walking with you you're explaining to them you're not just walking into the room and saying i have cancer no deal with it don't look at me funny don't have any fear around it don't be sad like that's not that's just not loving that's not a reasonable thing to ask this is so complicated what's your sense in terms of the general macro trend in our society for instance i know that there's a political movement i don't know 20 uh, quote unquote, red states have, have put in uh, certain levels of legislation, slowing down this train, other quote unquote, blue slate, uh, states, as you're saying, are opening up as sanctuary states. And so there's a, that political battle on, on state levels. Uh, but in terms of the societal shift or the societal, is this accelerating? Is, 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 is this freight train, uh, just growing in magnitude or, or do you sense that there's certain sociological forces, uh, other voices such as you today or detransitioners or other psychological people, uh, psychiatrists and medical professions that are saying, Hey, we just have to take a chill pill. Or is this saying just an out of control freight train, you know, and we, God only knows where it's going to end up. I mean, I'm hoping, I think it's going to be a little bit of both. I mean, what I would say is, we have to speak up and I had, you know, I, I'm hesitant of, I'm not exactly the PTO type, right? That's not exactly where this is the right place. And school of educate board of education isn't exactly the right place. But when you find out what your, your kid's being taught in school, it's alarming and we got to address it. So I think parents being a little bit more a part of what's going on at schools is going to be important getting back to the community. Um, professionals having to talk about it yeah I think 
being able to kind of have an agreement that, like you said, it has to be with empathy and care for common sense. This isn't about hate or denying what's going on. Um, we need voices. Um, we need the endocrinologists. We need the surgeons. We really need the medical professionals. I'm very surprised with the lack of speaking out from that group, pediatricians. And I mean, I can imagine it's fear and the fear that your family and your friends and your job will be taken away. I, I think you're right because I, I think these highly trained professionals that know better, there's definitely likely an ethos whereby they don't want to be, uh, take the risk. And I think it's just going to take people like yourself and, and others to give the other, to give everybody courage to, to speak the truth, you know, and, and not just swallow it and not just, okay, I, I'm going to protect my own interests. There's, there comes a, a, a point in a man and woman's life where you, you have to do duty for society and for other people and not just protect your own uh, emotional and psychological well-being, but have the courage to, to speak the truth and, and deal with the consequences. Some will get canceled. Some will get fired. Uh, some will be slandered in the most vicious ways. Uh, but, but it's going to take uh, some people just stepping up to get to a place of real dialogue, real debate, real policy that's based on, on, on what's best for, <clears throat> for, for everybody. Versus uh, just we're, we only do gender affirming care and we cut out the parents, we cut out everybody else and we're going to do this, you know, and, and, and I, I, there's gotta be doctors that say that, that are compromised within their own soul. You know, I, 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 I can't I imagine, know. I can't imagine. I, I watch them, these young surgeons talking about it and just, oh, I do, you know, hundreds of surgeries a day and, I think that's one of the things that really scares me the most is the amount of people that are probably going to end their life because of that, that, you know, these detransitioners that are speaking out and what I can only imagine the amount of people that are like, listen, I've gone this far, right? Like I've done things and I've been like, okay, I'm this far in, like, how can I, what else am I supposed to do? Some of these kids have convinced themselves like this was the answer. And if it isn't, mm -hmm then what, right? So I've had to, you know, talk to, have difficult conversations with people of like, you know, you were presented as this is the cure and what if it's not? And that is just so scary. And I know there's people out there that are afraid that they made the wrong decision, but going backwards is uncharted territory. And what, what would be the acceptance, right? And we, we've sold that, oh, it's reversible. It's not true. And, and do you have any idea like the long-term effects uh, on a lot of these drugs or are we still discovering? Are we still playing doctor? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're still playing doctor. I mean, I've obviously I've done some research. What's sad is that, you know, when I want to post research, there's very limited research in the United States. Right. And which is wild that they're not connecting with people afterwards, long-term care. Um but in other countries, you know, we're definitely seeing cardiovascular problems. We know with hormone use, like I said, I do IVF and they let you know six months of any hormones is, you know, your risk of cancer goes up exponentially. So we're talking 15, 20, 30 years on hormones, there is impact. And if COVID didn't make you think about it, you know, you're relying on the pharmaceutical companies. You lose your insurance, we lose uh, shipment to getting your hormones one day, there's going to be a lot of complications. So a lot of these people are the first ever to try this, you know, 
we're doing internal um, implants now for hormones and that's ultimately going to cause cancer. But I would have conversations with people like if that meant 15 years of the life, would you rather live that? And, you know, a lot of people said, yeah. Yeah. And and please forgive my ignorance. I'm just going to use common sense here. The, the human system on the cellular level from our mitochondria, our bone structure, our plasmas in our blood, our hormones, our proteins, there's an entire massive system. And even the smartest amongst us is still limited in the knowledge of the complexity of the human body, the brain and how everything works. And to me, it's just logical sense uh, by introducing 15 to 20 times amount of testosterone into a, a, a female biological body, which might, uh, you know, provoke more masculinity and facial hair, hair and, and uh, changes in voice and to present more masculine, there has to be on a, on a, on a small level, maybe what you're saying, the increase in cardiovascular problems or cancers, uh, other unintended consequences that we're just beginning to, to learn about too, you know, and, and vice versa. If we're introducing too much estrogen, it just seems like the male and female uh, hormonal and, and, uh, and, and how we're designed. And I'm speaking totally out of ignorance, just, just guessing there's much, much more nuance and complexity than just an introduction of one particular hormone. Oh, absolutely. Not to mention, I mean, if you talk to people, you know, phantom pains of, you know, they're not being taught that the people might have phantom pains of where their breasts used to be, you know, for the rest of their life. Um, Yeah. Definitely Mm -hmm. being disconnected later in life, not understanding what that does hormonally. Again, you're going to rely on the pharmaceutical companies for the rest of your lives. And I guess I'm a little surprised of how, about how many people are willing to be like that. I mean, taking medication and requiring that to be who you are. Um, it's no small thing. Yeah. Voluntarily, you know, well, Sarah, you are an absolutely beautiful soul. You're, you're my sister, you're my friend. And, uh, I, I really admire you. I deeply respect you. And, uh, May God bless you and your family and prosper you, give you wisdom for the future. And may you be a, 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 a fruitful and effective voice for policy mm-hmm. changes to truly help people. Because I know that's your heart. You're filled with compassion and empathy. That's why you've been in the profession you've been in. That's why you're helping families. And so uh, it's an honor for me that you would take the time and come on our mm-hmm. show. And so I'd like you to give the last word of exhortation and encouragement to particularly people that are going through this and or families that are mm-hmm. struggling and loved ones uh, to, to give everybody hope and, uh, and uh, how, how people might contact you if, if, uh, or your, or your practice. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but thank you so much. And I'm really, we are all really blessed that you would take the time to be on the show. And so you have the last word. Oh, thank you, Michael. Um, yeah, I would say keep reaching out. I mean, people can find me on my Twitter, Sarah Stockton, by my practice. I also would just say for parents to really know that people are there out there and there's groups like Genspec that want to help parents and a lot of other countries are being the example of this and I hope to continue that but just ex- I would expect for people to continue to look out for groups that are going to be there to support families no matter where they are. If you're in it, you know, just trying to take it day by day with your kids and teaching them what 
what's going on in their body and that no matter what, like that's what they're going to be left with. And externally that only so much can do something to change the internal and that there's nothing wrong with who they are and no one's born wrong. That's mm. a big one. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. And you, you have mm. a good day and uh, really appreciate you. Have a big hug. All right. You too. Thank you. Okay.